one big one that comes to mind is ownership. We give people the opportunity to have ownership over their work. Um, uh, that's where real accountability comes from because it becomes an internal accountability uh, rather than a top-down accountability. And that's where real employee engagement comes from, in my opinion. You know, when we are, uh, because we are all at the end of the day, super engaged with ourselves and our own success, uh, you know, and, and at that time I was more sober than I am now. Um, and, uh, but, but giving people the opportunity to have that ownership is a real gift. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantibos. And our guest today is Grant Muller. Grant is the author of Top of Heart. Welcome, Grant. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I am too. And I'm going to sort of wave the flag at our listeners to start with because this is not your typical conversations conversation. And that will become evident when I begin by reading a short excerpt from your book, Top of Heart. And your prologue begins with a story of traveling through the mountains of Colorado, um, coming out of a tunnel that is 1.7 miles long and 11,000 feet above sea level, and you're in and out of consciousness, and you've got traffic behind you, and three thoughts come to mind, and I'm going to start with the third one. Third, I remember the crystal meth on board and my urgent mission. Deliver meth to the mountain town where they happily pay a premium for the stuff. Oh, the stuff. Before I had solved my problem of steering an out-of-control car down a very steep hill, my attention turned back to the stuff. How do I get to the stuff in its hiding place so I can refuel? If I just dip in and steal a little, the buyers won't notice. I had long ago made a pact with myself I would never cut the dope. This wasn't an ethical stand, it was a practical one. I lived both on it and for it and couldn't stand to dilute its impact. After all, I survived on my own inventory. Instead, I had devised a different solution, a buying scale and a selling scale, each calibrated for my benefit. I had the selling scale with me. It was set to make less than a gram look like a gram, giving me room to breathe it in. It's quite a story, Grant. And that's just the start of it. 
Well, you read it very well. Uh, you might have a gig for uh, when I record the audio <laughs> version. I'm up for it. Um, Grant, you came to the U.S. as a child. And when you came to the U.S., you had a fascination with an animal. Tell us a little bit about that. We will get back to the the meth sure. part of your story in time. Sure. We... We moved here when I was seven. So this was 1979. And at the time in South Africa, where I was born, we had maybe two channels, maybe three, uh, mostly black and white TV. And um, Bonanza was a huge show and inspiration and the beginning of my love and obsession uh, for horses. Then... I don't know if it was for a birthday or, or what occasion, but I ended up with the book Black Beauty. And between Black Beauty and Bonanza, uh, I immediately fell in love with horses. And I have been obsessed ever since. Um, I like to say that other than um, my parents and my sister, I've loved horses longer than anything else in my life. And that love of horses carried over from South Africa here to the U.S., and it drove you not to college, but into your first job immediately out of high school, which was? So I got the opportunity to apprentice for a silver medalist on the Canadian equestrian team. And I moved to Canada uh, very shortly after high school, and um, it was the middle of winter, I don't think I went outside for the first four or five weeks. I worked in the stables and then lived in an apartment above the stables and um, was so exhausted by the end of the day. I didn't, I didn't have the energy to, to um, you know, trudge through uh, deep snow and, and cold to go anywhere. And over time, your responsibilities in that job increased but you didn't stay with horses. What happened? So by the time I uh, was finished with that apprenticeship, I moved back to Colorado. Um, I declared myself as a professional equestrian, um, which means that you can't compete in certain divisions. And um, if, you, if you earn a living, you, you're, you're limited in, in what you can do. And uh, so I declared myself a professional. And immediately I was riding 12, 13, 14 horses a day. Uh, so what we would do is train the horses in the mornings and the grooms would get them ready. So you'd get on one horse, train them for 20, 30 minutes, jump off the off one and they'd throw you on to the next one. And then you'd train through the day. Then in the early afternoon, the kids would get off school and you'd teach lessons to the kids. And then around five or six o'clock, the adult riders would come in from work and you'd teach the adults. And running through this process the animals started to become like machines to me. Um, they just became part of my work day, and I lost the love for it. I started um, losing my patience with them. It wasn't terrible or anything, but I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And you know, at this point, I must have been 19 years old. So, uh, you know, welcome to real life. Sometimes, when you take something that you love a bunch and turn it into a business. Um, it takes the joy out of it. And that's what happened for me. 
and I was observing you as you were telling that part of your story. And horses are in your heart. Oh, yeah. And, and that was so yeah. evident, and, and yet your whole demeanor shifted as you talked about them just becoming a part of the machine, a part of the process. Yeah. So what what did Grant do? So I didn't, I had spent a little bit of time with some community college, uh, but what I wanted to do was to be successful. And I decided I was going to become a millionaire by 30. And it's a very arbitrary time period, very arbitrary number. And, you know, later on, I learned that what I was really after was significance. And I felt that I could find some significance um, by achieving that goal. So I went to work at, at that point. You can imagine I'm not I'm not college educated. Um, the best job I could possibly get was the assistant manager of the local Arby's. And I worked that job as if I owned the entire franchise. Um, I took it very seriously. I came in on my days off. I worked long past when I clocked out. I had a ton of pride um, in that story. It was actually one of the more, and I don't go into a whole lot of detail in the book, but it was actually one of my more enjoyable times in my life in a business because it really did give me the opportunity to feel like a shop owner, if you will, um, to have the repeat clients, um, to start to watch as I developed relationships with them, um, that that job became more enjoyable. So I learned a lot in that job. Um, but every Sunday I worked the drive through window. And anybody who came through in a fancy car, I asked them, because I wanted that million millionaire by 30, I said, what do you do for a living? And one guy uh, was driving a shiny Acura, and I asked him and he said he was a stockbroker. And I went to the newspaper and looked up stockbroker help wanted ads, and there was just one, the newspaper, I, I know I'm uh, dating myself. It was just one ad and it was a brokerage that would sponsor you to get your uh, stockbroker's license. So I pursued that career next. And you were very successful at it. Well, um, initially I was terrible at it because I, I got hired into a penny stock brokerage firm. I was very naive. I didn't know what I was into. Six months in, I figured out what it really was and I went to Charles Schwab. And um, I applied myself at Schwab um, again, like I did at Arby's. I was there two hours early and I stayed two hours late. And I, um, I created a name for myself. And within a year, I became the youngest manager they had ever hired um, into that position, that level um, at Charles Schwab. I was 22 or 23 then. And then um, a year later, I got a senior manager position and I was in charge of an entire department. And the way I did that is I was the only one that applied for the job. <laughs> it was the department where they HR, where people sent the HR nightmares that they couldn't terminate. Um, and, but I, it was a bit of a turnaround. And um, between me and my boss, we turned that department around and it was a really, it was a really exciting success. Again, just um, enjoying enjoying helping others interact with consumers and create a better client experience. Grant, I love your story. And and, and I want us to keep going on it. But what I'd like to do is sort of reflect back on what we've 
talked about so far because there are really important lessons for people to learn from your experience. Um, so as you look back at your early experience, horse days, your, your Arby's venture, your journey into the stock brokerage, what were some of the lessons you took away? One big one that comes to mind is ownership. We give people the opportunity to have ownership over their work. Um, uh, that's where real accountability comes from because it becomes an internal accountability uh, rather than a top-down accountability. And that's where real employee engagement comes from, in my opinion. You know, when we are, uh, because we are all at the end of the day, super engaged with ourselves and our own success, uh, you know, and, and at that time I was more sober than I am now. Um, and, uh, but, but giving people the opportunity to have that ownership is a real gift. Uh, the other thing I would say is I learned very quickly that horses, roast beef sandwiches, and the stock market were secondary to relationships with people. So in the horse world, I, you know, I think looking back on it, it wasn't really the horses that I got tired of. It was the people that owned the horses that I got tired of. And so um, when I look back on that, I realized those were not the ideal clients. Those were not the typical types of people that I like to work with. And when I look at um, my time at Schwab, what I fell in love with was the end user consumer. So the B to C, if you will. Um, I loved helping my teams serve our consumers at a higher level. That's what I truly fell in love with. And when I reflect back, I didn't understand this back then, what I called leadership that I fell in love with in that role, more people in my, on my team were promoted out of my team into leadership than any other team to the point where Chuck Schwab, when he was in Denver, sat with our team to figure out what we were doing that was so different. One of the proudest moments in my career. And what I realize now is what I loved so much is coaching. I coached my team members into those leadership positions. And uh, so when I look back, I realize that the whole thing that ties it all together in one level or another is consumer service and coaching. So it's interesting when you look back at your life to see the themes that emerge that you could never you could never connect the dots going forward. But I forget who said that. Um, was it Steve Jobs? I think maybe. But um, looking back, you can connect them. There are so many themes and lessons in our lives, and as you said, the, there's so much value in that reflection. Looking at your life, Grant, how did you go from sitting down with Charles Schwab to racing down the mountains of Colorado with a meth delivery. So uh, from Schwab, I ended up at a tech startup in the late 90s. This is 1998. It was a Silicon Valley backed venture, uh, you know, venture backed company, and they were building their internet. It was, they were in Silicon Valley, but they were building their internet services division in Denver. This is back when, you know, internet services was a division, not the whole thing. 
And I started out, I was hired as their head of service. And I walked into my colleague's apartment, which was our Denver office, real startup. And I said, I'm the head of service. And they said, well, great, we don't have any clients. So you're also the head of sales. And I said, great, what are we selling? And they said, well, we don't really know, but here's roughly what we want to do. And I went out and recruited the first 50 beta clients. 18 months later, we went public. We all got rich. Porsches and Ferraris started showing up in the parking lot. Um, I had a foosball table outside my office. Lunch, dinner was catered. We were wearing holy jeans to the office. This is before Google um, made that made all of that cool. And I remember the night that we went public, I was sitting in my condo overlooking the lights of Denver and I was miserable. And um, I, I had had it. I, I was a millionaire on paper at least. And I was 28 years old, maybe going on 28 years old. And I thought, is this it? Is this what I've been working so hard for? Because I was pretending to be someone I wasn't in that job in the tech world. Um, I was trying to fit in. I was trying to play the part of the person that I thought I should be rather than being me. So I was miserable and I didn't even feel like my own achievement because it wasn't me that was doing those achievements. It was this guy I was playing on TV. You know? And so um, I started drinking and I had been drinking in high school prior and it, and it stopped. And I started drinking again on a daily basis. And then later that year, just a few months later, um, as it became the year 2000, New Year's Eve. I was in a hotel room um, getting ready to, to party for New Year's Eve with a friend of mine, and he had some cocaine. And I'd never tried drugs before. And he laid some on the table, and I tried it, and I fell in love immediately. From that very moment, I thought, this is what's been missing my entire life. It answered every question I'd ever asked or hadn't known I asked. And... Um, Within three to four months, I was fired from that job because I couldn't show up anymore because I was using cocaine every single day. Um, I was immediately hooked and in love. And bonus, the more coke I did, the longer I could drink without passing out. So it, those two things fueled each other in a really sick way. And um, one day, so I got terminated. And I thought, no problem. I'll keep partying. I was spending about $30,000 a month on partying and party supplies. And one day, one of my checks bounced. When you're spending $30,000 a month on partying, you don't sit down to fill out your check register. And I looked around the room and, and thought, you know, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to call and, and uh, you know, exercise more shares. So I called to exercise more shares of stock. And they said, Mr. Mueller, there are no shares in this account. And I said, no problem, put me on hold. Um, you'll find them, you know, go figure it out. And the lady did put me on hold and she came back on the line and said, Mr. Muller, you had 90 days to exercise your shares after you left the firm. And I had missed that date and I had relinquished all shares. And I lost um, a little over a million dollars in paper um, in that moment. And I did what any reasonable person would do. I looked at everyone in the room and said, hey guys, it's time to sell the cars. And we sold the cars, bought more Coke. And by the end of the week, the cars were gone, the Coke was gone, the friends were gone. And uh, it was very soon after that, that someone introduced me to methamphetamine as a quicker, cheaper way to get high. 
and it, it served its purpose. But within a few months, I was foreclosed upon and I was homeless. And you were... So I, I tried to make that story as short as possible. Uh, obviously, it's a long story, but... And you truly were homeless. Yeah. In the beginning, it was what I call gentleman's homeless. And gentleman's homeless means, um, you know, you reach out to a friend and say, hey, do you mind if I stay over at your place for a couple of weeks? And then it's, oh, do you mind if I stay over on your couch for a couple of weeks? And then it's, oh, do you mind if I just kind of sleep in your closet for a couple of weeks? But over time, um, what happened is things got worse and worse and worse. Um, if I, I, I did start because I was using when, when you're using drugs at that level and you're staying up for a week or two at a time and becoming insane and paranoid, you can't at the same time be employed anywhere. I had had some menial jobs then to keep myself afloat. I couldn't do anything. So the only job I had was to, to uh, sell drugs. And so I was doing that to support myself. And if I had drugs uh, to offer, to share, then I had a place to stay. But as my insanity, my paranoia, and um, the rest of it got worse and worse and worse. Um, very often I didn't have drugs and I would end up walking the streets of Denver. Um, and, and that would be my place to stay. Again, in the beginning, it wasn't so bad because I could walk into a hotel lobby and say, oh, I'm waiting for a friend. And I'd sit for a few hours in uh, the lobby and wait for friends. But by the end, nobody believed that I had friends or belonged in any hotel. Believe me, it looked very different. Grant, again, if you look back, to say that was a dramatic shift in your trajectory is an understatement. Reflecting on that shift, what did you not see that others who might be on a, a, a similar course might be warned, if you will, to look for the first the first truth uh, that i I believe my truth at least is that some of us are um, highly predisposed to becoming addicts. And there's been a lot of research done around the fact that you know drug addiction is not um the problem, it's the solution. And so I had some trauma, I had some issues um, that I was trying to medicate as a solution. And so um, the first thing is, as I drank through my early years through high school, et cetera, um, there were warning signs and there were opportunities for me to get help and I never did. Um, that would be number one. Number two, um, I hadn't ever slowed down long enough to think about what I was trying to accomplish. And as I said, now looking back, I realized I was trying to accomplish significance. Real wealth comes from contribution, not significance. And I was, so I was looking for love, if you will, in all the wrong places. And uh, once, but once, the other truth is, and this is a sad truth, but once once I was on my way, once cocaine was on board, there was there the only the only way to to improve upon my life was to hit rock bottom. And 
looking back, I realized I there was no rock bottom for me. I hit rock bottom, and then I dragged myself across that bottom for a long time. And unfortunately, many people don't survive what is their rock bottom. That's the truth. And I'm not, and with fentanyl especially, and all those things, but but just with drinking, we hit the rock bottom and just keep going. And so um, it just had to get bad enough for me that I had no choice but to stop. And I could, I didn't stop until I was willing to do whatever it takes to stop. So uh, part of the impetus for writing this book is to hopefully allow friends and spouses and parents of people who are addicted to maybe get a little bit of insight into what that mind might look like. We are all different and unique. But the sherry, the story I share is that when I sit in 12-step meetings, um, it's a pretty darn common story. It's really nothing special. I'm a, I'm a typical run-of-the-mill, hopeless junkie. Um, but I happen to make it. And so I just want to speak for those um, who still might be struggling because at the end of the day, no one is truly hopeless. Um, so that's, that's the message I want to share. I want to come back to that message, but... One of the things that really struck me is not only did you hit rock bottom and dragged yourself along that bottom for a long time, but you made more than one attempt to get off the bottom Absolutely. and ended up back on. What was the turning point? So um, one of the attempts that I didn't even go into detail about in the book um, I, first of all, I solved the cocaine problem. Um, I was able to quit cocaine completely. I just tried meth and just used meth. And then during one of my attempts, um, I got what I considered cured from drug addiction. Um, I got a job. I got a little cottage I lived in. Um, I, it was a management job. It wasn't a terrible job. And I just drank an entire bottle of vodka every single night. And, um, you know, that was my first attempt. And it was better than some of the things I'd been doing. But there were many attempts that were just half-hearted, um, imperfect. And I always like to share that because uh, it's, not, it's not the Hollywood ending everybody wants. But it was ugly. It was ugly for a long time. And... Uh, Honestly, what finally got me clean and sober is I was running from a guy that wanted to kill me. And um, he was the head of a gang. And he was a Colorado's most wanted fugitive. He was a very, very bad person. And he had eyes everywhere. And I was hiding from him in a crack house. That's, by the way, half a mile from where I'm standing, which is just mind-blowing to me every day, mind blowing. I was hiding in this crack house that was so disgusting and dangerous and filthy and scary that I used to refuse to go in there to sell them drugs. I would make them come out to the street because I was so scared of this place. It was just that, and I was pretty much all those things as well. But now it was my last refuge and I was hiding there and I, I was sick because I was, I think I had bronchitis, 
but also I was sick because I wasn't, I didn't have any drugs. I couldn't leave to go get drugs. Nobody would front me drugs. Nobody would give me money as a client to go get them drugs. I was stuck. I, so I couldn't use my medicine. I had no medicine left. And even when I did have the medicine, it didn't work like it used to. Um, it hadn't worked for years by this point. And, you know, as an addict, you don't get high anymore. You just get better. You just get well, if you will. And I, so I was absolutely desperate. And I was also running from probation. Um, I was supposed to go to prison for four years, uh, but they, I had a suspended prison sentence. And so I was stuck. I just had, I was back against the wall. I had nowhere else to go. Um, so I'm so grateful that I have the privilege, and I think it's a lot of privilege, that I was able to call my mom and say, hey, mom, it's me. I know you've been looking for me. Here's where I am. Would you Would you come get me? And she did. And that began the journey back. That began the journey back. I There were stumbles along the way, but yes, um, that began the journey back. And I had a, my sister was working for an insurance company. They sold insurance to businesses. One of the businesses that w were her clients was a rehab in Minnesota. One of these fancy $50,000 for 30 days kind of deals. And they said, if, and she had told them about me and I had, I had vanished from my family's life no contact for their own safety and for my and to protect my ability to use every day. And uh, she told them about me and they had said, if you ever find him, we'll, you can send him here on scholarship. So she convinced my probation officer. The day I turned myself in to my probation officer was a, the day before they had revoked my suspended sentence and I was supposed to go to prison for four years. And my sister had convinced them and advocated for me to go to rehab instead. And uh, not all of my friends have that kind of privilege. A lot of them are dead or still in prison. Um, so I always, always like to mention how much help it took for me to get where I am. And I want to come back again to the journey and, and the important messages for all of us, not just those of us who are struggling with drugs or um other other kinds of crises in our lives. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about where you are now. Well, uh, I'll start by saying I got to ride my horse first thing this morning. Um, I'm an amateur competitor with my horse, and uh, it is it brings me so much joy. And I love being an amateur and getting to make silly mistakes and be the client. Um, I run a seven-figure real estate practice uh, for residential real estate sales, and I coach. Um, I'm a high-performance coach for realtors, entrepreneurs, salespeople, and um, launched a speaking career that's been really fun. Uh, I get to speak in front of 600 people at the end of September, uh, which I'm currently preparing for. So living the life, truly living the life of my, of my dreams. And once again, Grant, you just light up as you're talking about where you are now, and and the passion comes through, and the sense that once again you've connected with purpose. What do you want to say to the the folks who may or may not be struggling with some sort of addiction, 
but are finding themselves in situations that they're just don't feel like it's what they want anymore. I think the, um, the most important part of the message is that we don't change alone, whatever we need to change, um, whether it's, it's losing weight, drinking less, becoming a better parent, um, growing into our own as a leader or a salesperson, we all work together. Um, community is the solution. And um, find, find the community and find the connections um, that can help save your life or save your marriage or save your career. But we grow together. Um, and in recovery, we say, 12-step, we often say, I can't, we can. And so when we think from a we perspective, our whole lives um, can change so dramatically. And so I would say reach out for help. And by the way, uh, for any of your listeners, anybody who's struggling, I'm absolutely available. Um, they can reach out anytime to me. Um, I um, sponsor people in 12 Steps, and I have a sponsor in 12 Steps. I continue to work that recovery program. I see a therapist once a week. Uh, I have four or five coaches in different parts of my life. Uh, so I live, I, I, I walk the talk. It takes a whole lot of help for me to do, to, to build that life that I just described. And I believe we all do, we all do so much better together. There's so many, so many important messages in just that, that little wrap up that you just did. Um, yes, listeners, good coaches have coaches. Good coaches have coaches, and and as as I often talk about with my clients, even if you're really really brilliant, you don't have all the answers, and and you're not as capable alone as you are with the wisdom of the collective, with the support of the collective, and and. You know, that's part of what you're talking about too, Grant. It's not just um, having a, a, a buddy. Yes, that's important. It's, it's about having people who are there for you because you're you. Absolutely. It's about people um, in, in my coach training, my coach, my, uh, Damien Goldberg, who, who was a two-time president of uh, the ICF Board of Directors, uh, I was fortunate to train under him. And he said, as coaches, our responsibility is to stand in the greatness of our clients, even when they're not there. What you're talking about is um, being willing to stand in the greatness of those in our lives, even when they're not there, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues at work or members of our team at work or those who we report to at work. Um, and ourselves. And ourselves. You know, when we can hold that space for ourselves as well. Um, and then that, that's not, that's the hardest one for me. And, and I think it's the hardest one for a lot of my clients. But when we can create that space for ourselves just to breathe, just to give ourselves the, the ability to breathe, 
and to dream um, is, a, is a great gift we can give ourselves. I don't know what there is left to say after that, Grant. <laughs> any, any last words that you have to offer to our listeners? I, I'll just share with you that the way I got clean and sober is I, I was authentic. I got real. Um, I built some skill sets and I learned about the opportunity to transform our lives through genuine relationships. Uh, all three of those things, the mindset, the skill set, and what I call the heart set, are part of how I've developed my business practice as well. And so the second part of the book is around that business practice, learning those things from recovery and bringing them into the business world. And uh, so it's been really cool to have a full cir circle opportunity to see that all come together. So um, I've had a great conversation with you today. Grant Muller, author, Top of Heart. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much.